0: Hi, it's your host, Eric Cohn. I just want to note that for this podcast episode today, we welcomed a new guest, a new contributing editor at the Acton Institute, Emily Zanotti. We had some technical audio issues uh, with Emily during the podcast. I don't think it's unlistenable, uh, but you will hear that Zoom disruption sound when the connection is not so great. So we ask you to stick with us. We're working out the technical problems, but we still think the content of this podcast is well worth your listen. Thank you. Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening and ask that if you're listening to us on our website that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode where you'll find a link to subscribe directly to Acton Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find this show. Today, I'm joined by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate. And this week, for the first time, we're welcoming a new contributing editor at Acton, Emily Zanotti. This week, we'll discuss uh, whether or not Catholics, or I suppose people of any faith, can be depressed, as well as we'll talk about the passing of Pat Robertson and Ted Kaczynski. But first, let's go to court, uh, because who else is going to court? That would be former President Donald Trump. He is due in a courtroom, I believe, in Miami tomorrow Uh, where he will be arraigned following the release of a indictment connected to the documents, the classified documents that he took from the White House when he left, when he left the presidency, down to Mar-a-Lago. We will include in the show notes the entire indictment because I really want to encourage people to read it. It's about 47 pages. It is not that big of an undertaking. Uh, And because... It's kind of a wild read. Um, For one, the photographs that they have of where the documents uh, were stored or where the boxes were stored – are kind of crazy there's a stage in what looks like a ballroom at mar-a-lago and there's all the boxes lined up on them i think the best thing that i saw that a friend sent me was uh they had they had taken that photo and they cut it in with the opening music of seasons of love from rent because it looks like all the cast members standing at the front of the stage there um and the other is all of the boxes. In the bathroom at Mar-a-Lago, and only last night did I see somebody point out because they were um, excessively looking, again, at the design of the bathroom, including a rather gaudy chandelier that, again, exists in a bathroom at this like, great, you know, a very fancy establishment that also has a tension rod curtain for the shower. If you look above the tension rod, you can see there are boxes piled behind the shower curtain as well. I only noticed this last night.
1: Well, there's also not just a chandelier, but there's also a skull.
0: Oh, it, it. So
1: you have to make sure that you've included all of our lighting
0: options. Yes. Um, <laughs> it, it truly is the Palace of Versailles. Um, it is. It is it's something else. But I I encourage people to read the indictment, not only for the inclusion of those pictures, but also for some of the recorded back and forth that Donald Trump had with other people that I'm sure uh, we will get to as well. In fact, um, I will do a one person dramatic reading of at least one portion of that because it is worth hearing. But I think we should revisit a question that we asked when the Alvin Bragg indictment came down. Uh, I don't even know how long ago that was because time is a flat circle. I believe it was like a month or two ago. And at that one, I think our general reaction to it was... Um, Alvin Bragg is making a bit of a stretch for a legal case. And if you are going to indict a former president of the United States and current candidate for the presidency, you should probably have the goods a little bit more than Bragg did. But it looks like the Department of Justice does have the goods here. So, Dan, I'll, I'll toss it to you first to tell me, I mean, just one, your general reactions to this, a much more substantive indictment of a former president of the United States. As well as to consider the question of, uh, like, say, Missouri Senator Josh Hawley is suggesting that this alone, the fact that a former president of the United States and a current candidate for president has been indicted makes us some kind of a banana republic.
2: I mean, I think this is just not the case. I mean, we have had we have presidents indicted before we have had impeachments before Um, we have had. Uh, all sorts of all sorts of things like this, many countries around the world have this phenomenon that doesn 't mean that they 're banana republic now occasionally banana republics do arrest people um under uh you know, spurious charges, but if you read this indictment, this is a pretty open and shut case of something that's very, very simple for the public to get its head around, which is a basic sort of Seventh Commandment violation. He took things that were not his. He was asked to return those things. He said no. I mean, this is very basic. You shall not steal. That means you don't take That also means you don't obtain in a dishonest way, and that means that, you know, there's a positive duty to help your neighbors secure their property. Um, You know, the catechism of the Catholic Church requires restitution for stolen goods. Now, this can happen inadvertently. This has happened inadvertently. This happened inadvertently with former Vice President Mike Pence. This happened inadvertently with... Uh, former Vice President Joe Biden. It happens a lot. There's a lot of documents that circulate around offices, and sometimes they get taken by mistake. At that point, what happens? Somebody notices, they request that they be returned, and they're returned in a timely fashion. And this is what happened in the case of Vice President Pence and Vice President Biden, and most of the time when these sort of things happened. Like so many things, Donald Trump president trump is an original and uh in his response to this and uh we get a very strange open and shut case as a result of this
0: yeah emily I'd, I'd like your take on the legal merits of this uh because you uh have education and training as a lawyer uh which i sometimes find hard to believe because i believe you can see your reflection in a mirror uh but this—I'm I, I, curious for your take on the legal merits of this indictment as you see it. But to the point of what Dan was just talking about, the big difference between— this case and the other ones that are being referenced, with the exception of Hillary Clinton, which I want to get to in a little bit, right? I think is basically summed up in, uh, let's see, what page am I on here? Page 21 of the indictment, which includes that Trump, in some substance, made the following statements, among others, as memorialized by Trump attorney one, quote, I don't want anybody looking. I don't want anybody looking through my boxes. I really don't. I don't want you looking through my boxes.
1: I think the mo- my boxes theory that was raised early on in Twitter was actually the one that proved correct is that he was convinced that these were his possessions, despite all legal indications that they were not. So this is pretty cut and dry to me in terms of where this falls legally, just because he knew what they were. It appears that he knew actually what was inside the boxes. In a number of occasions, he appeared to have tried to show people, um, particularly in the case of what now seems to be a plan of attack for a country um, that just sort of got glossed over in all of this. That There was apparently a plan of attack for I think it was Iran um, that he was like, oh, hey, let me show you like it was a party game. So there's that knowledge. In most of these cases, you don't have a mens rea. You don't have an intent to keep it you know pence didn't biden appears not to have um hillary clinton is a different matter but in this case he's got the intent and that seems to be what the federal bureau of investigation waited for they waited for somebody to come forward and say look it's not accident yes he took these boxes but he knew to some extent what was in them and that was his and he believed that he had the right to possess those, even though the law said he didn't. So I I don't necessarily think he's got much to stand on here um, other than an argument that perhaps Hillary Clinton didn't face a whole lot of repercussion for a bathroom server or bathroom documents, uh, similar to what he had, except yeah. that he had a hard copy and she... Yeah, the, uh,
0: the, the, the passage that I wanted to do the dramatic reading of is i think speaks directly to that where i mean again this is just wild and the kind of thing that i almost expect chat gpt to have spit out as a script for like what this interaction may have looked like so um i will jump in here and again this is in the indictment people can read it for themselves uh trump this was done by the military and given to me uh i think we can probably write staffer i don't know we'll we'll have to see yeah we'll have to try to trump declassify it Staffer. Figure out a yeah. Trump. See, as president, I could have declassified it. Staffer. Yeah. Laughter. Trump. Now I can't, you know, but this is still a secret. Staffer. Yeah. Laughter. Now we have a problem. Trump. Isn't that interesting? It it, again, it just is kind of amazing. In a way that the joke for a long time about Republican politicians was that they would read their stage directions. Like the the greatest example of this is George H.W. Bush when he was giving uh, remarks denouncing David Duke, who had won the Republican nomination for governor in Louisiana, said in his remarks, I want to appear to be distancing myself from David Duke Those are the stage directions. If you say the things that are on the script, you will appear to be distancing yourself because you will actually be doing it. Uh, Again, just the directness of what Trump and this staffer are talking about, uh, to me, just kind of reveals the whole thing. Back back to Emily's point, the difference between the Biden and Pence incidents is once Biden and Pence were informed that, yes, they had these documents – They returned them. And the archives, National Archives, asked for this stuff back from Donald Trump multiple times. And again, included in this indictment are all the machinations as well about, well, we'll put some boxes here. And can you go through and can you pull stuff out? I mean, there clearly to me looks like there is the attempt to conceal what they actually have and not be honest with the National Archives when they were asked to return all of it. So you it is fair for us to treat this case much differently than we were treating the cases of Pence and Biden, which have been regularly brought up as a counterexample for why we should supposedly be outraged about what is happening here in this indictment.
2: One of President Trump's continual struggles has been to differentiate himself from the office of the presidency. And I think you have in these transcripts a real window into that. Um, These boxes were in his office, so they are now his. The notion that there is a separation between the office of the presidency or indeed the government itself and President Trump seems to be something that he fails to grasp routinely. And at this point, it has gotten him in some serious legal trouble.
0: Yeah, the Emily, I'd I'm, I'm, like again as a legal analysis, and I think it's worth raising here. Some of the charges under which uh, Trump has been indicted are connected to the Espionage Act, which, again, I think even right. within uh, a pretty meaningful case here, I think it's perfectly reasonable for people to have questions about the Espionage Act, especially considering its origin, right? I mean, this dates itself back to Woodrow Wilson right? and an attempt to squelch opposition to the first world war.
1: Right. And the, uh, the Espionage Act has been used often and actually more recently because you have incidents like Bradley Manning or Chelsea Manning. Um, you have, uh, Edward Snowden, um, reality winner, also for some reason was contacted some comment on this and and said, well, you know, the the Espionage Act is nonsense, but in this case, the Espionage Act worked. Um, But that is a case of actually possessing those documents, not necessarily knowing where those documents are going. Um, And there's some indications here that those documents may have been taken or at least kept because there was an intent to use them sometime down the line. Maybe it was just to show people at a cocktail party at Mar-a-Lago that there was some plan out on the table. But the concern under the Espionage Act, it's actually possession um, with possible intent, which makes it a really difficult uh, act to understand and honestly prosecute because it's so subjective. But yeah, you are correct. origins of the um, Espionage Act were more to keep people from even attempting to undermine the government rather than just physically undermining the government.
0: I don't think that for a minute that Trump took any of this stuff. And again, we you know that the passage that I read is in reference to, as, as Emily said, a either plan of uh, proactive attack or responsive attack, depending on something that Iran did. Uh, the concern from some people was like, you know, oh, is Trump taking all kinds of secrets that he's going to sell or give to the Russians because we're still on the Russian beat? And, you know, it. this to me is very much connects back to an observation that someone made to me about trying to understand just Trump himself years ago uh, during his rise to the Republican nomination. And as the child of a New Yorker, this always struck a chord with me that if you want to understand Donald Trump better, just imagine before he speaks a radio show host on a sports talk network saying Donnie from Queens, go ahead. Um, He is a caller to like WFAN in New York City who knows how to better run the New York Yankees than Brian Cashman and the Steinbrenners know how to run the New York Yankees. And as a New York Yankees fan, I don't know, I may be willing to give him a chance there. But understanding that I think Trump's motives are always more personal and venal than they are these mass conspiratorial things that are often tossed out about him colluding with Russia, which was, you know, a a big deal. And would he have colluded if he had the opportunity? Uh, I think we can probably say he would have. And I think this is a good chance to point out as well, go back to the Trump Tower meeting. And the way that this is being defended by Trump's people connects back to that, which is essentially it started with The Trump Tower meeting never happened. Okay, the meeting happened, but it was about adoption. Okay, the meeting happened and it wasn't about adoption, but we didn't know what it would be about ahead of time. Okay, the meeting happened, we knew it wasn't going to be about adoption and we knew what it was going to be about ahead of time, but we didn't actually do anything. uh, And the president and Donald Trump himself didn't know. Okay. It was the meeting did happen. It wasn't about adoption. We knew it would it would be about ahead of time. And Donald Trump did know about it. So what are you going to do? It it eventually comes out to this just kind of confession.
1: Yeah, it, it, it ultimately comes down the line to, well, I'm going to actually say and this is this is the most confusing part is you give him long enough and he will boast about it. So it becomes rather than an excuse, the next step along the way is actually, yeah, I did it and i do it again. So (laughs) you actually as an attorney have a big problem because your client is like, "Um, yeah, no, actually I thought it was mine and now I'm totally fine and doing it and I'm gonna do it again. So it, it, yeah, it's a very confusing.
0: It's exactly, I was watching, Uh, a few good men last night, and it is essentially the end with Jack Nicholson saying, "You're darn right, I ordered the code red." Um, you know, I think he is he is pretty eager to because again, it's the my boxes thing, right? It's like this was mine, and I should have it because I want it. Um, so, it like, this is also probably one of those reasons why uh, he has gone through more teams of lawyers than I think anyone I've observed, and almost to the point where. I don't believe the last attorney that I saw speaking for him on this his name was Jim Trusty which just sounds like it was a like again chat gpt was asked to create a lawyer for Donald Trump and the name Trusty was the one that it came up with it's almost unbelievable one of
2: the things I think that's helpful to think about this is, you know, there are a lot of people who are, are caught up on thinking about this in terms of, you know, Boris and Natasha from Rocky and Poe Winkle, that this is some sort of, you know, grand plan gone awry. Um, and there are people, you know, defenders of President Trump that, you know, dismiss that. And I think rightfully so. But what we have more is like the lady from work who takes toilet paper home with her. And, you know, because she's put in a hard day. And, you know, why should she have to stop on her way home to pick up toilet paper? She's got family responsibilities at home and doesn't. I mean, she works for this company. Why? Why This is she's entitled to this toilet paper. This is this is in her mind, her toilet paper. And I think in the same way, this is in President Trump's mind his boxes because they were in his office. And I think that that notion of any sort of professionalism, of boundaries between work and life, between person and vocation, uh, between person and past vocation – do not exist. And I think that's the only explanation for the behavior as
0: outlined in the indictment. Here is where I think we should probably also address and uh, in a way dispense with the Hillary Clinton example. Um, This has been incredibly frustrating to me because unlike the Joe Biden and Mike Pence examples of people who were discovered to have had classified information and should also make the point here as well, Absolutely do. I think we need to take another look at the way that we classify information. I remember um, Eli Lake, uh, I think on the commentary podcast or perhaps on his own com- uh, podcast, making the point about when they said you know, Trump took classified information, he would wait to, fu- uh, to decide how serious this actually was. Until he had an idea of what kind of classified information this actually was, because we have this tendency to over classify information that doesn't necessarily need to be held in such top secret regard. Um, And I think, again, with the the passage that I read, which points to this like military attack plan with regard to Iran, yeah, that does seem pretty serious. So I'm going to go ahead and say that we've we've reached the point where the seriousness uh, of it is 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 considerable. But the Hillary Clinton example I think does connect a little bit more and where I come down on this is pretty clearly I understand the reasons why the Justice Department under Jim Comey did not want to indict Hillary Clinton in the middle of a presidential campaign. I think the reason for that should be pretty obvious to everyone because they were afraid of the impact that it would have on the race and not wanting to interfere. It is not – by statute, but by policy that the Department of Justice will basically be hands off about political candidates within a certain amount of time before an election. I think it was a mistake to not charge Hillary Clinton. And if you are one of the people defending Donald Trump in this case, who thinks it. Uh, are defending him on the grounds of, well, Hillary Clinton had an email server in a basement and took a hammer to the server and other devices to make sure there wasn't accessible and, you know, destroyed copies of emails. Um, Yeah, all of that was bad. And the way that we fix a double standard problem, which I agree there is a double standard problem here. The way you fix that going forward is to not say, therefore, nobody will ever be held to account for this kind of a violation of law. Again, it is to say we will start holding people responsible going forward, and it was a mistake in the past. But I invite people, and we will put it in the show notes as well, to go through Jim Comey's admittedly bad and unnecessary press conference – Because I think we'll both admit I have never in my life before seen a press conference from the Department of Justice announcing they are not indicting somebody, which was a huge, huge mistake on Jim Comey's part. Go through the standard that Jim Comey lays out in that press conference. I think the Trump case meets that standard and – for when he would go ahead and bring charges. So I, to a great extent here with the Hillary Clinton example, I don't know what we're talking about.
1: Yeah, I I don't see how you can say, but her email. You see a lot of people saying, oh, well, this is just so much worse. Well, actually, it's about the same thing. Uh, um, in terms of the Espionage Act, you're going to actually look at the Espionage Act. There's an intent to that This server was routine. It doubled over the Department of Justice server in a way that really, or Department of State server, really nobody's ever been allowed to do before. So, this was classified information. And yeah, some of it was about yoga classes, some of it was about her daughter's wedding. But just like these boxes that are piled high and in a bathroom at Mar-a-Lago, there's probably just as much incidental classified information and intentional classified information in that she was the secretary of state. That's what opposed to her.
0: I think we've probably covered everything that we need to cover about the Trump indictment, um, if not only because uh, as we see the former president and current and a current candidate for presidency of the United States being indicted as a conversation worth having on this podcast. I think we're going to get at least one more bite at this apple because there is likely an indictment coming from the state of Georgia for Donald Trump's uh, actions after the uh, election in 2020. Uh, we, We will see what an indictment in Georgia looks like. So we will have plenty of opportunities to once again discuss the machinations of one Donald Trump and his legal issues. I want to move on to something that uh, I saw uh, Emily bring attention to on Twitter, which was this tweet of a Catholic bishop, um, which I do not have it in front of me at the moment. And give me a moment; I will pull it up here. Um, Bishop uh, Athanasius Schneider um, talking to looks like LifeSite News. Making this case, and we'll drop some audio in here so you can hear it himself, that uh, Catholics cannot be depressed. So we'll roll that audio.
3: To be intimidated with these phenomenons, to be driven in despair, on the contrary, we will do what we can to proclaim joyfully, with conviction, the true Catholic faith. A Catholic cannot be depressed. No. Why? Because we know our faith. We love our faith. We have to be always proud, wholly proud, I mean, of our Catholic faith. And we have all what we need. We have the old catechisms, the perennial magisterium of the Church. We can read this. We have the Holy Communion, our Lord Jesus Christ there. We have the graces of God. And this is is suffices. And therefore, we have to be joyful every day that we can live with God, in God, in Christ. This depends on you. When you are living with God in Christ, you are even joyful in the midst of the battle. And uh, otherwise, your faith is weak. You have to, to deepen your Catholic faith. As the martyrs, they were joyful to be persecuted, the apostles. Now, when we witness, of course, humanly spoken, when we witness these phenomena of apostasy, as the, German, the majority of the German bishops, or of this uh, sad collaboration of the Holy See with the with the global ideology uh, of the political elites, of the diversity of religions, of gender ideology, and so on, it is sad and it is humanly spoken understandable, but nevertheless, we have to say we will not allow to us to be intimidated with these ph- phenomena, to be driven in a despair.
0: So Emily, like I said, you were the one who, uh, I, I first noticed this from, um, G- give a, give me your reaction to this contention uh, from this Catholic bishop that uh, because of, you know, the glory of our faith, uh, Catholics can't be depressed.
1: I'm not really entirely sure how the glory of anyone's faith can have an impact on a physiological problem, um, unless we're talking about praying to a saint or uh, some sort of intercession or some sort of miracle. Um, it is a really confusing statement because ultimately people defended it, said that he just was saying, oh, well, it's a beautiful religion. You don't have a right to be depressed about your religion. Even if you think things are going wrong in the church, um, ultimately the gates of hell will never prevail against it. So you should never be sad about that. Well, that I understand. But the way that it was presented was ultimately Catholics are not allowed to suffer from a kind of mental illness because that is really a spiritual dryness, a dark night of the soul. And if you rejoice in your faith, you can actually come out the other side. Which is, you know, in some cases that may be true. In 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 routine depressive episodes, but there is this sort of tendency, which is very straight on the part of, you know, sort of right leaning Catholics to assume that all depression or all mental illness is somehow over medicalized and a um, excuse for not an excuse for behavior as such so it, it was just an odd statement to make and it seemed seemed almost completely inaccurate how we understand it, how the Catholic Church understands depression and how across the pantheon of saints we understand uh, mental illness and encounters with God.
2: So, I mean, I I guess the first place that I'd like to begin in talking about this is to just offer a word of encouragement for those who maybe struggle with depression and who have religious faith. Uh, The psalmist tells us that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the Christian spirit. And Christ himself implores us to come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What makes a Roman Catholic is... Baptism, And we all know people in our lives, varying degrees, some folks very devout, some folks, you know, lapsed Catholics, the rest of it, who struggle with depression. Um, this happens. Um, are there spiritual consolations, dare I say remedies to these in some cases? Absolutely yes. Do we have a... You know, a medical community that we've developed in the Western world that has many helpful approaches to this, some medication management, some talk therapy. Uh, yes, all of these things are true. Oftentimes when we get into these debates about depression, we get into the debate in terms of, oh, it's fake or it's biologically predetermined, which means that you are either cursed from birth to be afflicted with this and for it to never change or never get better, or you're a whiner. And the truth, like so many things, is in the middle. There is hope for people in depression. Religious faith can be a source of that hope. There are also help available um, from doctors and clinicians and from friends and family. All of us are called to be a support and comfort to each other in all sorts of difficulties. And that includes the friends and family in our lives who struggle with depression. And that should come from a place of listening and solidarity first. Advice may be solicited. Advice may sometimes be warranted. But you should never devalue and dismiss the experiences of others um, because that's just not the way that you help others make progress on through these issues, very difficult issues. And it's not a way to signal your, and to use like some Pope Francis out phraseology, your availability for encounter with them in the world.
0: This to me reminds me very much of this thread in, I, I would say culturally conservative circles that, um, as so much in culturally conservative circles these days is very reactionary and it is reactionary to the way that people talk about mental health in you know 21st century america and and the rest of the world as well and i as uh As was pointed out earlier, you know, the truth, I I think you, as you said, Dan, is somewhere in the middle with these things. I think that's also if we take the Catholic faith portion of this out for just a moment and just talk about the way that we have conversations about things like depression and mental health and, you know, seeking counseling or therapy um, that on, on one hand. The consideration of every bad thing that has happened to someone in their life as being trauma, I think, is generally unhelpful. There is this flattening of distinctions that exist between, you know, uh, witnessing, you know, uh, if your father is murdered or something terrible like that. That's a truly traumatic experience. Um most things that happen to everyone in high school um, are not traumatic in that same way. And the fact that that word is being used to describe all kinds of different things that happen to people, I think provokes this kind of reaction that is rejecting Of the legitimacy of mental health issues and uh, rejects people's attempts to work on it. I I think you also see this reflected in the kind of uh, at a very something that I think is told more often to men. That it is told to women, and that is uh, this insistence on a sense of stoicism—that you know you just have to quietly deal with the things that um, that happen to you in this world—and that is as kind of a a sign of weakness to seek any help or counseling beyond. uh, I think what we argued in this case and what we're talking about the power that your faith is supposed to give you to overcome things. And again, just just as was said earlier, I think it's just very reasonable to think that the truth is in the middle of all these things that one can think we're doing this flattening thing to a uh, unhelpful extent that makes all kinds of bad things that befall you equally traumatic um, and that treats all mental health issues as kind of the worst possible mental health issue that you could be dealing with. But on the other hand, just simply having faith is not sufficient to, be, uh, to get you out of that. And it is perfectly reasonable to acknowledge that you experience these kinds of things and to seek a different kind of help for them that isn't just spiritual, that also treats your specific mental health with professionals who are trained to do that kind of thing.
1: There's also, in addition to therapy and therapeutic idea, in that everything is trauma and post traumatic stress disorder, uh, and we do like, a, lot, a lot of people we pathologize a lot of people's lives, uh, um, and you'll notice this if you go on to TikTok, everyone's parents were somehow abusive, even though the odds are not there. Um, but it turns out, you know, if your parents didn't thank you, you have issues. If your parents did thank you, you have issues and they're all the same, they're not all the same. People do have um, real pathologies and real trauma, um, but we have flattened that out. On the same vein, we've also kind of generalized a concern about, say, big pharma and pharmaceuticals, that no medication is ever appropriate for the treatment of mental illness for some reason. Um, yes, there was a time in the 90s where we over-medicalized everything, that people were over-prescribed. Um, but we also are an era where those things do help. Um, and you see, this happened a little bit last year when a study came out that showed that SSRIs don't necessarily improve serotonin balances. We've known that since the 1960s. We don't necessarily know how SSRIs work, um, but we do know what they do and that people have reported uh, more than just a placebo. So there's a skepticism in terms of the medical community and the pharmaceutical community and the sort of profit-seeking idea. Uh, and perhaps there is a little bit of that and there is a medicalization, but that doesn't mean that every instance where somebody is medicalized for this, and myself included, that it is wrong or incorrect or unhelpful or, you know, they would be better served if they just went outside. So we're at a point and this is probably the of things like the discussion around mental health that we don't see that as a middle ground that there's a ability to care that there's ability to speak to people yes we have a loneliness crisis yes we have a crisis in we're not reaching people um and you know my maybe i just sort of stop. that's okay um But that said, you know, that doesn't mean that that doesn't exist, that we can't acknowledge that there's an illness, that there is some sort of physiological component to this. And that both things, religion and care and community, as well as medical attention, do help.
0: I just want to note uh, just how much of a pro family podcast we are that we have invited the entire family to join us for it. And uh, Emily, I'm sure your kids will be uh, someday discussing the trauma of being shooed away while mom was trying to podcast. Um, that, that'll be.
1: Hey, he locked himself. He locked himself in the kitchen. I didn't do that. <laughs> I mean, he's going to have to answer to a therapist
0: for it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think. I think Emily makes some good points, especially drawing in like the the over-medicalization that – or at least the over – The attempts to treat a lot of this stuff broadly with medication in the past, Uh, my mother can share with you the story of when I was in first grade and my first grade teacher thought that I was ADD or ADHD and they prescribed me Ritalin and they gave me one dose of it. And we had like of those long sectional couches and I was running back and forth on the sectional couch. And uh, apparently just being like, I really like to stop talking and I don't know why I can't stop talking, but I have to keep talking and I can't stop talking. And now, to be fair, um, it is now what, like, you know, 36 years or 34 years later and I still haven't stopped talking. So maybe that wasn't the Ritalin. But, you know, at at minimum, not every person who had a difficulty concentrating in first grade was ADD or ADHD. And I, I can appreciate The uh, wanting to have um, some kind of a review of how we over prescribed people there, but it's like it's these pendulum swings in the way we talk about these things that I feel like this one is coming very much back to the other side again. Given what we talked about earlier with this kind of flattening and leveling of everything being trauma, of everything being some kind of post-traumatic stress disorder and people building up. But I think this is a fair criticism. People building up some sense of identity in their mental health problems, which is unhelpful. I mean, we're all seeking to be able to cope better with our lives and the world and things that are difficult to deal with. But, you know, again, we are— To borrow from Michael Miller, embodied embedded beings, we are individuals and our mental health problems are no more our identity than uh, anything like sexual orientation or political ideology. They are parts of who we are, but they aren't definitive of who we are.
2: I think this is very key to understanding how religion and spirituality can be helpful in thinking through these things rather than to devalue and dismiss the experiences of people. This gives us a perspective where we are not reduced to our physiology, where we do not pathologize ourselves is our struggles. Um, you know, uh, Eric has wanted me to bring up Yoga Pants ever since the first time I brought up Yoga Pants as sort of a recurring feature of this podcast. I won't do that now, but I will. Another
0: another thing, a certain section of Catholics inveigh against online way too much.
2: Yeah. But – yoga philosophy i will bring to the table and and the sage patanjali descri- describes yoga as the cessation of the fluctuation of consciousness or in fact like a sort of mind stuff with the idea that the mind is not identical to us and when we're able to do that what is the result and he talks about how then you know the seer is able to dwell in his own splendor and i think there's a A deep wisdom in this, that if we can develop a critical distance between both, you know, physical maladies um, with negative thoughts or behaviors, that's that can offer you a window into making change into dealing with this in a productive way and giving you a perspective of, you know, of life containing other possibilities. Um, And that's a really, I think that's that's the helpful way to think about, okay, what does spirituality bring to this conversation? Um, It doesn't bring a cure-all. It doesn't bring, you know, uh, um, you know, miracle cures, although in fact that also happens, um, but doesn't necessarily sell. Um, and I think, you know, there are there are constructive ways that you can talk about religion contributing to people's mental health without devaluing and dismissing modern medicine, pharmacology, those sorts of things.
1: There's also fact that you don't necessarily have to view these as negative. So, if somebody happens to be depressed, they happen to struggle with anxiety, they're going through a spiritual crisis. Those things aren't necessarily a problem in the sense that those give people spiritual experiences. They give people a deeper understanding of the self and the soul. Often, with religion, you're now going outside of yourself, so you're doing less of that interior. Uh, examination or that deep physiological examination that leads you to kind of dwell in yourself rather than in the spiritual. Um, I, you know, you had scenes throughout history that perhaps those mental illnesses or substantive <laughs> issues affiliated with them, you know, St. Nicholas might have had some anger management problems, but that to made him who he is. So you end up having it's another facet of a person that you need to look at if you're looking at the dignity of the human person. This is a part of that. Um, and if so to explain it away or to say that nothing, you know, there's no pharmacological cure, there's only a spiritual cure or there shouldn't be a spiritual cure. That's kind of denying somebody an aspect of their own personality that maybe makes them who they are or what they've become too.
0: I just want to note uh, for posterity's sake that um, I reject Emily's light contention that St. Nicholas's predilection to punch heretics was some kind of sign of mental illness. Um, You are so lucky Dylan
2: Palman is not on this podcast (laughs)
0: because he would get into the historiography of this whole incident. Uh, Maybe we'll have to we'll have to make a note to revisit that in the future. But I want to move on to our final topic, and I want to acknowledge uh, two people who passed away uh, in the last week, two very different people. Um, the first is Pat Robertson. Of course, you were probably familiar with Pat, Robinson, Pat Robertson uh, as a, a pastor, a religious broadcaster, a former candidate for president, uh, the founder of CBN, the Christian Broadcasting Network, the longtime host of the 700 Club on that network, a very prominent figure in uh, what is essentially televangelism and the charismatic movement within Protestant evangelicalism. Um so I, I'll throw it open there uh, for comments on Pat Robertson's passing and just note that the other person who we are going to talk about who passed away uh, took his own life at the age of 81, and that is uh, Theodore Ted Kaczynski, better known to most people as the Unabomber. Like I said, uh, two very different people who have passed away uh, this week. But I mean, for Pat Robertson, we don't have to dwell too long on either of these, but um, I I think Pat Robertson helps to illustrate the problems that are created uh, – the irony noted that I say this into a microphone – of somebody who has a microphone in front of their face 24-7. I I remember this point being made – if people remember the whole incident back in – I think it was 2009 – When uh, one Glenn Beck had a show on the Fox News network and he made comments about uh, Barack Obama having a deep seated hatred of white people. Um, There was something he said in his apology for that, that I kind of always stuck with me as somebody who had done talk radio and aspired to do more talk radio at the time. When you have a microphone in front of your face and your job is to talk for three hours a day, five days a week, and then in Glenn Beck's case, throw in another hour on television, it's virtually inevitable that you're going to say things that you regret. And most of what was being remembered about Pat Robertson uh, when he passed um, from Twitter, which will never uh, pass up an opportunity to speak ill of the dead, uh, was some of the more— awful things that pat robertson said over the course of his broadcasting career um i don't think he has to be remembered only for that certainly this is a man who uh drew a number of people in using the medium of television in a way for christian broadcasting that hadn't been used before but also was given to saying some things uh in terms of explanations for natural disasters or say terrorist attacks that were let's say at minimum unhelpful Uh, for advancing a Christian worldview through this particular medium? So I would say listeners
2: who are unfamiliar with Pat Robertson, as many listeners will be, he's sort of like a figure on television, on sort of the Christian right, founding the Christian coalition, coming out of a, a presidential campaign. But Pat Robertson's whole life is fascinating. And Kate Shelnut at Christianity Today did an amazing obituary that I would commend uh, to readers talking about um, a very long, very interesting life. Um, his father was a senator. Many people don't know this. The interest in politics is a family business. Um, and he steps away from that trajectory of life to go into ministry. He eventually finds his way back, but he's also unique in that he's an institution builder. He founds a university that's still active today. CBN was really the first large-scale Christian media company. He sold a billion-dollar entertainment company at one point. This is somebody who saw technology, as a potential outlet to improve people's lives and to spread Christian faith. Now, all of the caveats that Eric said, yes, absolutely. But I think when we're contrasting him with the Unabomber, we have something very different. We have, on the one hand, somebody who embraced technology, who embraced institutions to put forward a vision of the world, a vision of the future of American religion. We have, on the other hand, a crank, an anarcho-primitivist who withdrew from society, someone who renounced participation in institutions and in technology other than as a completely destructive force um, to visit violence on persons. Um, and I think I think there's a, I think there's a meaningful contrast to be drawn there and one in which Robertson comes out as a much more vision, constructive vision for social engagement.
1: It's salty that Pat Robertson's that store finds might be possessed with demons. Uh, but other than that, I think that I it really is. I mean, for all that goes on I think we always focused on the bad stuff or the inappropriate or the extra stuff that came out of the 700 glove because once the internet was coming to be you kind of had our reddit our atheists and and the other side of the pendulum swing that came out cherry picking a lot of what he said not that he never gave them any opportunity but there is an impressive level, especially living in the South, um, there is an impressive level of engagement over technology for Christianity, for particularly Protestantism and evangelical Protestantism here. Um, Catholics obviously have EWTN, and, and I'm not really sure that that wouldn't have come out and force the way that it'd be. If the um, attention paid to like the 700 Club, many of us Millennials grew up with a parent watching the 700 Club. It wasn't necessarily that they agreed with everything that was on there. It was just an available opportunity to hear somebody talking about Christianity and what the Bible said about current events. And we've essentially brought that into our lives quite well, um, integrating religion and technology. Now, Theodore Kaczynski, also a proud graduate of the University of Michigan, might have had some good ideas. You know, the manifesto didn't necessarily not predict the technologization of what happened over the next couple of decades, but um, he did blow people up. So it kind of had an issue there with his media, let's say.
0: Yeah, I, I, Emily gave a perfect segue in there to what I was going to say about Ted Kaczynski because um, this <laughs> this would happen even before he took his life, or we believe he took his life in this uh, in the past week, uh, where people will make reference to this uh, thirty five thousand word manifesto, Industrial Society and Its Future, um, which here I'm just going to read the Wikipedia description of it. A social critique opposing industrialization, rejecting leftism, and advocating for a nature-centered form of anarchism. Uh, And this is a frustration of mine that happens occasionally on the right and on the left where um, people will – Take certain segments of something like the Unabomber's manifesto and basically try to do a um, Ted Kaczynski, basically some good ideas, kind of a take on him. And I don't think that that is necessary. Look, there are plenty of social critics that exist out there who have made observations similar to the ones that Ted Kaczynski made about modern society. Um, I I think you can – if you read that manifesto, uh, I hope you do not come to the same conclusions as Ted Kaczynski because you should not. Um, Look, there are – as Emily pointed out, there are problems that technology has helped create or exacerbate in the modern world. What is important here is less Ted Kaczynski's critique and more what we should have as the outright rejection of the way that he sought to approach the problems that he identified in that manifesto. Uh, namely retreating into the woods and mailing bombs to a whole bunch of people. Three people died because of his actions. Um, That is the way that he should be remembered. He should be remembered as a criminal and no more should we do the kind of Ted Kaczynski. Yeah, he kind of had some good points. Then we should do an Adolf Hitler. Yeah, he kind of had some good points. Um, Anything like if it, 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 Anything that any of those people would have said that has merit has been said by other people and you do not need to be unnecessarily provocative and point out like have you read what Ted Kaczynski said. You can point to plenty of other social critics who can make the same points that Ted Kaczynski made without having to carry along with you the baggage of mailing bombs to people.
2: Let me, as a service to listeners, offer two suggestions for people that I think in many ways are, 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 are also, if not cranks, cranky, but who are very thoughtful people who are also sort of deeply informed by a Christian vision of the human person and the dignity of the human person that would make the sort of violence that Kaczynski made his life's work uh, untenable for them. And one is the Protestant theologian Jacques Yule. And then there's the uh, Catholic theologian uh, Ivan Illich. Um, Both of these people wrote uh, a very technical, skeptical uh, perspective, uh, Ivan Illich's Tools of Conviviality is perhaps his, his, his greatest, most accessible, least cranky uh, version. His most cranky is Medical Nemesis, which, uh, you know, a lot of what we said about the excesses of, of critics of uh, psychology and modern medicine can be found there, as well as a, uh, you know, suggestion that maybe Maoist medicine is better than Western medicine. So you have this – you have this – Tendency, even in the best example of these sorts of thinkers, because they become consumed by these questions in an ideological fashion, that they tend to embrace excess. Um, And I think that there is something about, you know, know, there's there's a sense in which we're all pilgrims on this earth, and that we should all feel, in some senses, alienated from society. At the other hand, we're also called to engage this society and to make a positive contribution and to be witnesses before it. And I think often when you get these technoskeptical people, that alienation predominates. And it, and it leads, um, even in its best examples, to some very strange, if not equally dark places.
0: Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Acton Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look right now in the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Acton Unwind or just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this show. Thanks to Dan, thanks to Emily and the toddlers. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.